What's going on, everyone? This is Jackson Nikolai, one half of the podcasting duo of No Script, the podcast. I'm here at the top of this episode to let you know that I had a little bit of audio issues on my end of the podcast, so my microphone did not record correctly for this podcast. No worries, the backup microphone caught the whole conversation and it's all still here, but alas, this is the best my voice will sound for the entirety of this podcast. Without further ado, here's the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen, and welcome back to a wild, weird world. Yeah. Situation seems to change every day, so uh, we record these somewhat ahead of time, but given how many days there are between when we record and when this comes out, we just have no idea just, just what no the world idea. might look like. Yeah, gosh, I hope y'all are having a good time out there. Uh, <laughs> Zombies aren't roaming the street, I wouldn't guess. I feel Probably I feel like not. that's a safe bet to say that's not happening, which yep, is yep. a good thing. So everybody but, can feel positive at least about that. Assuming that's not actually happening. Assuming that's not actually happening or that other things aren't roaming the street. We don't know, but don't worry. We are here to comfort you in your isolation in this strange time by wrapping up our mini month with one more one-act play. That's right. Today we are talking about what might be one of the most famous one acts of all time. If you're a theater person in the theater world and somebody asks you for a one act, this is probably going to be in the short list of plays you're able to name off the top of your head, or at least that I can. I don't, maybe it's not wise of me to speak for everybody, but I think this is generally a pretty well-known one act play, pretty representative, especially of a more traditional view of what one act plays are. Today we're talking about Trifles by Susan Glassbell. Yeah, Trifles. Surely you have heard of this. If not, read it, and I'll bet you you'll remember that you had. That's right, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those plot lines that even if you haven't necessarily read every page of it, you've heard the story before, I feel like. At least that was my experience sitting back down to read it again. I'd forgotten that I'd read it, forgotten that I knew it, but I got five pages in and was like, oh, wait a minute, I've like seen this before somewhere. <laughs> the other benefit is that you say you got five pages in, and that's like halfway, more than halfway through it. It's <laughs> yeah. nice and short. This is the shortest of what people are considering at least what we're considering for mini month as one acts um a very short play it's not quite a 10 minute play i think the running time is just a little bit shy of half an hour um but it's it's very quick reading reads in much less much less time than that mm -hmm. and good opportunities for for scenes for people a great 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 little play to kind of dig your teeth into yeah, I hadn't thought about it for scenes, but there are some really great scenes, especially for two women. Uh, yeah. The two women characters in the show are the show, and they have a lot of the stage time to themselves. If you are looking for a scene to do with another woman, uh, dig into this one. I think that you'll find a lot in there. I agree, yeah, and that's that's kind of a rare thing to find, so so definitely, I'm, I'm excited to get to jump into this one. Before we jump into it, though, we would like to ask all of you to head on over to patreon.com slash no script. Again, that is the easiest way to find our Patreon, is just to type in patreon.com slash no script podcast. There, you will be able to become a supporter of the show. We're so grateful, so, 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 so grateful for those of you who, did I say so enough times to express so, so how grateful so. we were? really are <laughs> we're really <laughs> grateful if you are a supporter of the show we've got a lot of them and they are doing a lot to help us cover the production costs of this show we love to do no script it's something that we look forward to it's a great part of our lives it's just not a free part of our lives so we're asking you who enjoy no script who listen to no script to help cover the costs of production if you go to patreon.com slash no script podcast you can become a monthly supporter there's several tiers whatever works for you 
in your budget. The lowest tier is just $1 a month, $12 a year. That level, even at that level, it is so, so helpful to us. If you even join at the $1 a month level, you'll be able to access the patron-only posts we have over there. We post art, other scripts, videos of cool things that we're finding, poetry. We also post heads up on the upcoming scripts, so you get an early view of the content that we're going to be covering on No Script. So, asking you again, please become a supporter of the show. Head on over patreon.com slash no script podcast. And now back to the script. <laughs> I had to get I had to just get one of those from you this this many months. I tell you what, well, I'll say this on <laughs> air. When I do the Patreon thing, you can say, and now back to the script. And when you do the Patreon thing, I'll say, and now back to the script. All the people out there who've been worried about our bickering about this now back to the script thing, which was just like a golem impression I did one time seasons ago. We can establish a rhythm and solve the controversy. (laughs) Now the stakes are gone, though. (laughs) All right. Cut all that out. (laughs) It's still a war. Uh, So now back to the script. Now back to the script. I'm going to give you just a little bit of context for uh, Trifles by Susan Glassbell. There isn't. A whole lot to find on it. Um, it was produced quite a while ago. Uh, it was part of the Provincetown Players, which is obviously a famous uh, group of players in theater history. Um, but uh, Susan Glasspool wrote it for that company back in 1916 and actually uh, played one of the characters in the original production of the show. It's part of a, a, an example of early feminist drama, especially in the U.S., um, and, uh, and, and so it kind of joined a, um, an echelon of plays and was carried forward somewhat on the, on the energy from that movement. This play, as we've already mentioned, is imminently producible. It's just five characters set in one's place with a set of stairs, basically, and a door. Like, that's all that you really need for the set. And there's some more. There's some more uh, specifics, but, like, those are the big elements. So, Yeah, you need a houses. kitchen table and a cupboard and some sewing equipment, some chairs. But, like, I love to watch clips or other productions of the scripts that we're doing online, and most of them that I see are, you know, without all the walls, without any fancy lighting or crazy spectacle of it. You just put up some furniture on stage and a good wash and you're going to be able to do a great production of this play very technically producible yeah yeah definitely and and just and and as we'll jump into with the synopsis really rich to dig into kind of there's some a little bit of comedy in there a little bit of dark humor and quite a bit of drama so so yeah it's 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 been done and will i imagine continue to be done for quite a long time yeah, if you've seen this play, which a lot of people have, it, it probably is in the context of educational or community theater right now because it's a public domain script and it's fairly well known. Schools love to capitalize it. Community theaters love to capitalize it, on it. Another benefit of the script, which is sort of a negative for the script in its professional life, is that it's a short play with five characters, which in the professional world, that's a lot of characters even for a full-length play anymore. Um, but especially for a one act like this, that's a lot of people. But in a high school, in a college, in a community theater, having five characters, the most prominent of the two being roles for women, is awesome. So that's why you'll see it a lot done as, at high schools as part of a one act festival, one act festival at college, one act festival at a community theater. You'd see it in there. Uh, Those five characters are George Henderson, who's the county attorney. He's the youngest of the group. I'm not quite sure if we're meant to just assume he's unmarried because he's younger, whereas everybody else is, they're all married and they're older characters. Um, But that's the sense that I got from the script. Henry Peters is the sheriff, and his wife, Mrs. Peters, is, those are two more characters. And then Lewis Hale, who is a farmer, and his wife, Mrs. Hale, uh, right away in the naming of the characters, you might start to see some of the early feminist influence. The female characters are fairly deliberately, I would think, titled rather than named, which I suspect is a, a way to highlight kind of the injustice, especially of the time and even now today. Uh, so there's some interesting things there. The, the plot of the script is that the day before the action of the play, a uh, man, a John Wright is the man's name, was found dead in his home, his wife, Mrs. Wright, uh, downstairs sewing. 
Minnie Wright. Minnie is her name. And she is taken in, again, before the action of the play, she's taken to prison on the assumption that she probably did it. And so now the action of the play begins the next day as characters I named, the county attorney, the sheriff, and some neighbors, and uh, some other characters, they come by the house to investigate and find evidence of what happened. They're fairly confident that she did it, the the wife, but they need to find the motive for the murder. Uh, the county attorney and the sheriff sort of have discussions about because she's a woman, the trial probably will go in her favor unless you have everything all buttoned up, which includes a motive for the murder. So they're pretty sure that she'll get off, even despite all the evidence that was probably her. She was home. She says the murder happened while she was like in bed with him, and she never noticed. So there's all these questions about it. But the county attorney and the sheriff think she's probably going to get off unless they can find a motive for the murder. So while they're there investigating, the county attorney, the sheriff, and a neighboring farmer, these three men sort of bluster and bumble around the house looking for evidence after having entered, the whole five of them, enters the kitchen. And almost right away, the men are like, well, there's nothing in here, right? right. It's just kitchen stuff. <laughs> we'll go off and look in the important rooms, the bedroom and the barn. And they bluster and bumble all around and just can't seem to find a motive for the murder. While the wives, Mrs. Peter and Mrs. Hale, they start to look around this kitchen and they discover some interesting things. They discover that Mrs. Wright, who's the wife of the murdered man, she had been sewing a quilt. And lots of the quilt was really well done, but the more recent sections are all over the place. The, the sewing is bad and sloppy. And these women say, well, what would cause her sewing to get so much worse? Was she nervous? Was she upset? What was going on? So they find pieces of evidence like that. They find a birdcage, and the birdcage has been busted open. And they say, well, where's the bird? She, lo- there, we, she probably bought a canary from an, an, a salesman who had apparently come by recently. And we know she loved to sing, so she probably loved this canary bird. But where's the bird? Then they find the bird's body tucked away in a beautiful little box, which they assume might have was going to be a coffin probably for this bird, which indicates that Mrs. Wright loved the bird. And then they say, well, what killed the bird? Well, the bird's neck was broken strangled, cracked, whatever. And that was also how the man, Mr. Wright the Farmer, was killed. At the end of the show, and we can discuss why this occurs, is that these two women hide all that evidence from these blustering, bumbling, investigating men. And they decide to cover all that up to sort of hopefully allow Mrs. Wright to get off for the well, the murder of her husband. They, they seem fairly confident that she definitely did it at the end of the play. But they cover all the evidence up. And that is how the show ends. Yeah. No, that's the broad sweep of it. And just one more little piece of context that I forgot to mention initially. This is actually a somewhat of a inspired by a true story that Susan Glasspool experienced. She was a journalist around the Des Moines area of Iowa and uh, interacted with a story that was like this. Uh, uh, some, someone was accused of uh, killing their husband and got off in court. And so the uh, the. Uh, the kitchen that she that she remembered uh, going into and looking through as part of her journalism process kind of inspired this play and the the action of this play around this kind of strange story of how of of a of a kind of a country country farm village relationship and uh, how it went south. So let's get the obvious script analysis r- out of the way right off the bat, Jackson. Why is the play called Trifles? Yeah, so the play is called Trifles. There's the line that Trifles is directly mentioned is uh, spoken by Hale, the the neighboring farmer, and uh, it's around uh, the 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 bumbling guys who just come through and basically like pick up a bunch of stuff, kick a bunch of stuff, comment on how dirty the kitchen is. Um, they're in there, and uh, one of the women was sent. I believe it's uh, Mrs. Peters uh, brings up that uh, the jars uh, that that. Uh, Oh, what's what Minnie, Minnie, but what's her, Mrs. Wright, um, that Mrs. Wright had put up the preservatives. She, she wanted to go check on them and they had all broken. Only one was remaining. Um, because it, it's this place set dead in the middle of winter and the house is freezing cold because nobody's been around. Mrs. Wright, Minnie, it was in jail and the husband dead. So nobody was around to keep a fire up. So the house got dead cold overnight and all these fruit jars froze, thus exploding. 
Mm -hmm. So they find this. Uh, Mrs. Wright asked her friends to go and check on them for them. They find them broken. And uh, the sheriff says, and I'll just kind of quote the lines here. Um, the sheriff says, well, can you beat the women held for murder and worrying about her preserves? The court attorney replies, I guess before we're through, she may have something more serious than preserves to worry about. And Hale says, well, women are used to worrying over trifles. Women are used to worrying over trifles. Yep. Now, that is a great line in a, a play that is about the oppression of women. It's a great, it's a powerful line. It sets up definitely what we're about. And then to use trifles as the name of the play. It's such a memorable name as it is because it's an unusual word. And then to find it so sharply put in the script itself, there's a really nice, it, there's just a jab about that line, especially because it's the title, where you start to get the sense of what kind of a world we're living in. Who are Who is this story really going to be about? And not only that, the kind of idiocy of these guys is proven by the end of the play because it is in the trifles that the evidence is. <laughs> the, the, the women pretty much throughout this play solve the case that they're walking around trying to find and, and also process uh, some of the, the implications for why she might have killed her husband all by looking at the trifles, <laughs> the little things like jars of preserves and sewing baskets and like piecing together almost like Sherlock Holmesian uh, how this all happened by looking at the things that the men are claiming don't matter at all. Right. Immediately, this is just up the page in my version of the script, four or five lines before the powerful line about trifles, there's this exchange. The county attorney says, they're in the, standing in the kitchen. County attorney, I guess we'll go upstairs first, then out to the barn around there. Then he's talking to the sheriff. You're convinced that there was nothing important here, nothing that would point to any motive. The sheriff says, nothing here but kitchen things, which is dismissive, it's arrogant, suggests that the kitchen is a place of unimportant stuff. And why would that be true? Well, this is the early 1900s. The kitchen is the realm of women. It's the realm of feminine things. These guys are uncomfortable. They're often kicking things around and offending the women by commenting on how dirty these things are. They don't, they don't feel like they belong there. So, of course, if they don't belong there, there's nothing important there. It's just all kitchen things. Right. But from the kitchen things, <laughs> if they had spent any time at all there, they would they would have maybe, uh, you know, solved the case that they were trying to, to bring about. Another interesting piece of kind of we'll call it surface level script analysis, just looking at kind of the basics of what's in the text, is that only the men refer to Mrs. Wright or Minnie as Mrs. Wright. I did a search after after I read the script and I was pretty sure that was true. I went back and searched through using the control find features on my computer to be sure of that. And that did end up being the case. The men refer to Mrs. Wright as Mrs. Wright. The women refer to her as Minnie. Um, Minnie Foster, I believe. I apologize if I'm incorrect about that, which would have been her maiden name. Mrs. Hale knew Minnie back when she was Minnie Foster. And now she's become Mrs. Wright. Her identity has been stolen from her. What's interesting about that little feature of sort of writing the, how the characters talk about the names of these individuals is that Mrs. Hale and Mrs. Peters, ostensibly the main two characters of the show, they call each other by Mrs. Mrs. Hale, Mrs. Peters, but they talk about Mrs. Wright as Minnie. That's an interesting little piece of the writing that I'm honestly not quite sure what to do with. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I, I'd, I'd be interested to know like how many times especially Mrs. Peters calls her Minnie because it's established through the play that Mrs. Peters does not know her from childhood, that she's from uh, out of town, that she moved here more recently, and that Hale is the the main person who who knows Minnie from before. But but certainly that that like connection to to who she was is an important element of this play, especially for deducing the reasons why she might have killed John Wright. Um, be, because not only did did her identity change when she she married uh, John Wright, but also um, a, a lot of the things about herself changed too. We discover through the through the play that she used to sing all the time, that she was just kind of this free spirited person, and then marrying uh, him and 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 
living in what is described as a pretty secluded part of this community, uh, kind of down in a valley sort of cabin with no telephone, we learn in the middle or right at the beginning. So very little connection to the outside world. Something about her changed through this marriage. Right. Mrs. Hale talks about, in fact, one of the lines that's oft quoted from the show is the line she, speaking of Minnie, Mrs. Wright, she said, Mrs. Hale says, she, come to think of it, she was kind of like a bird herself, real sweet and pretty, but kind of timid and fluttery. How she did change. And the change that they're referring to is a different persona that took over when she married John Wright. Now, it's not totally clear, and perhaps this is a very intentional choice, it's not totally clear what about John Wright is so negative. They describe him as cold, they describe him as indifferent, Uh, apparently he didn't want kids or they just weren't able to have kids, he didn't like her to be happy, We, we don't, there's no indication, at least in the what is written that that Minnie was physically abused by her husband, although I guess the fact that he killed her bird might indicate that he at least is capable of physical abuse. Um, and we're never really given a lot of indication that like he called her terrible names or, you know, gaslighted her or any of the standard things that today we would think of as emotional, traumatic, psychological abuse. But there certainly is the case made by both Mrs. Peters and Mrs. Hale that Minnie was an abused, um, oppressed woman in this house. Yeah, most I, I agree that there's no uh, kind of specific language around that we don't get uh any sort of hard facts about their relationship. Um, you, you just kind of hear the secondhand account of the effects that it has on Minnie. Um, and that's, that's the, the most evidence that we get from the perspective of these two women about her change and what their, um, what their marriage might have, the role their marriage might have played in that change. Um, we also, uh, through, through the course of the play, see the lengths that she is willing to go um, to uh, to establish some equilibrium again. I'm talking about Minnie. The action that she takes against John, uh, her husband, isn't a reestablishment of some sort of equilibrium that I think speaks to some hurt that was caused prior to that event. And of course, the the action that is so specific that causes the action of the play is his murder, which is a direct response to the murder of the canary, or at least that's the conclusion that Mrs. Peters and Mrs. Hale come to, that uh, this sort of building tension between the two of them in this cold and indifferent and abusive and oppressive marriage, that tension builds and builds and builds. And finally, John Wright does something that crosses that line. He strangles, chokes, snaps the neck of this canary, however it happens. And so as a response to that, in this kind of tit-for-tat justice, Mrs. Wright, Minnie, strangles, snaps the neck of, however, with this rope and this rock, her husband while he's sleeping in bed. Yeah, I'm glad that you said it there because I think it bears saying there, there is some mystery at the beginning of the play as to whether or not she actually did it, but I at least come down pretty solidly that she did. I yeah, think, of course. Yeah, I don't I yeah. don't think there's any question. And in fact, almost nobody in the play really thinks there's a chance that she's innocent. Mrs. Hale says, I don't I don't think she did it kind of early in the play, but you get the sense that it's more of a sort of solidarity, unwillingness to believe this about my neighbor, and that tune quickly changes. The real question of the play is for the women, why did she do it? And for the men, can we get a, gather enough evidence as to why she did it that we can turn that into a motive to use at trial? Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of the journey that they all go on uh, for the play. And and especially then the, the question becomes, once the women discover the answer to that question, right? Why did she do it? Um, they, they, I think they figure it out. Um, I think that the, there's some there's some really fun evidence as far as like if, if you're looking for those little little clues and things like that, the quilting, uh, there's, there's a quilt that she was making that suddenly like the last couple stitches became extremely erratic. Um, and so it's, it's, there's some fun deduction that happens, but then the question becomes, after they've deduced some of the motive, is whether or not 
they will turn her in for it or right. turn in the evidence. That is a really good example of how good the writing is in this play, that it's not just these women playing Sherlock and discovering the answer to a mystery. We solved the mystery. The question of the play is, what are they going to do with the answers they discover? Minnie is an offstage character. She's in some ways the central character in terms of most people talk about her. The, all the action of the play revolves around her and what's going to happen to her. But she's an offstage character. The story that we're following is what are these two women going to do with the evidence that they discover? Mm-hmm. And, and the, the implications, right, for that, too. I think one of the constantly whenever the men float through the scene, the, the, this is accomplished by them either being upstairs or out in the barn. They kind of just pass through the kitchen and say some things and then float out to another room. They're kind of like hurling... I mean, this this, sound, this sounds a little hyperbolic, but basically hurling patriarchy at them every time they come into the room. Um, the, the kind of last straw that is mentioned is, I think the attorney says, in some ways, he says this to Mrs. Peters, who's married to the sheriff, in some ways, you're almost married to the law. Ever thought about that? And her answer is, no, not quite like that. So... Well, and, is, and I think that that that's a really that line is very near the end of the play. And of the two women, Mrs. Peters, the sheriff's wife, is the one who's less sure that she is going to go along with this cover up. Mrs. Hale is all about it. Of course, she's known Minnie for forever. She's known for forever that there's been a real problem in this marriage. She feels guilty that she didn't go over to help. We learned that she hadn't been over in more than a year because she, too, was sort of afraid of John Wright, of Mr. Wright, of the kind of person that he was. So she had stayed out of it, and now she feels guilty about that. So she's on board to cover it up and protect Minnie from very early. Mrs. Peters, the wife of the sheriff, is less sure. She's, I don't know that we should be interfering. The fact These guys need to investigate that. That's their duty under the law. It's our duty to provide up the evidence. That's her train of thought. But in the final stage, major stage direction of the play, Mrs. Peters is the one that first tries to hide the canary body, which is the key piece of evidence. And you mm -hmm. have to think that this line where the, the county attorney sort of blows off Mrs. Peters and says, well... Your husband's the sheriff, so you too must be married to the law. Sort of loose, losing her identity into her husband's. You have to think that that's part of what pushes her towards this cover-up. I agree, and that and that moment, that moment kind of displays that as she's trying to hold or hide away the uh, the little box with the bird in it. It doesn't fit in her pocket, and she kind of breaks down. She's she's trying kind of frantically. To, to to fix this problem um, and it has to be mrs. Hale who ends up coming up and grabbing the box and putting it in her in the large pocket of her coat so that that moment is certainly a a, a moment where the character switches that something flips um, something unexpected that she has not premeditated is occurring it it almost makes the case that if you had to pick between the two women who is the protagonist? you probably would make the case for Mrs. Peters. Although I, I tend to feel that Mrs. Hale is a more dynamic character and she drives more of the action of the play a little bit. It's ultimately in that climactic moment, what are these women going to do? It's Mrs. Peters that makes a decision and it's she who's the more conflicted character that has to resolve something in that climactic moment. The one who has to go on a journey that, that has to walk through because you're right, previously she kind of over and over says the law must punish uh, people who do wrong things. Um, and that's that's kind of the journey that she goes on in the play is, is well, maybe there are some times <laughs> when we can protect someone who did something that maybe was justified. And she's, and like you say, she's the one that's sort of defending the role of these investigating men. Mrs. Hale has felt from the beginning that they've paraded into this kitchen, made all kinds of fun of the way Mrs. Wright kept her house, uh, basically locked her up in town while they came to snoop through her dirty laundry, is how Mrs. Hale put it. And Mrs. Peters says over and over, well, this is what they got to do. They're the law. This is how it works. We got to find the evidence. The crime has got to be punished. And then she has things that change her mind little bits at a time throughout the show, like this sort of important moment. The two women have just picked up the quilt to look at it, the quilt that Mrs. Wright was uh, working on when the neighbor who discovered that 
Mr. Wright was dead, came into the house and was asking about Mr. Wright. She was working on this quilt. And so they're they're examining this quilt that the men blew off. There's nothing in the kitchen. They go upstairs. They're examining this quilt. And as they're talking about it, the, the men come downstairs and find them working on this quilt and they make fun of them. They say, oh, they're wondering about whether she was going to do it this way or make the quilt this way, ha, blah, 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 blah. And then they head off out to the barn. And Mrs. Peters is the one who says, well, don't worry so much about what they say. They've got important things on their minds. Setting up that distinction that they're working on the important case. We're just, we're just looking around, basically. But she immediately has her mind changed because that is the moment where they discover that, oh, how weird, the more recent patches of this quilt are done really badly, which is one of the important clues that leads them on this road. So they discover an important thing, whereas Miss Peters just said, well, the men are the ones doing the important things. So she's on that journey. Things happen to her to change her mind as she goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and... I, th- I think I agree that Hale is kind of Mrs. Hale is kind of the the one who eggs them on and kind of pushes those things. She does push the plot along, um, but but she she ends up being the one who uh, who supports uh, Mrs. Peters in that decision and kind of just pushes pushes the envelope every every once in a while and it provides needed information, needed perspective about the history of. Mrs. Wright. It's interesting. It, Mrs. Hale, I think you're right, is the one that is driving it. Uh, but Mrs. Peters is the one who's got these harder decisions to make. The quilt is another good example of that. Just as soon as they discover that the quilt is sort of un, is, is badly made, Mrs. Hale just automatically starts tearing out all those bad stitches. She's immediately covering up the evidence. Well, we don't need these guys to see that. And Mrs. Peters says, well, why are you doing that? I'm not sure we should touch the evidence. And Mrs. Hales puts her on the spot. What do you suppose she was so nervous about? She presents Mrs. Peters the chance to say, well, she might have been nervous because she had killed her husband. And Mrs. Peters then has a decision to make. It's not about covering up the evidence yet. That larger decision comes later. Mrs. Hale's already made that decision. She's already doing it. Mrs. Peters' decisions have to build. So the first question is, I've already covered up the evidence. What do you think I was covering up? Here's your chance. Say it or don't. Do you think she killed her husband? And Mrs. Peters defers. Oh, you know, sometimes I sew badly when I'm tired. She provides the excuse, whereas even if the men found this sloppy quilting and thought that, Mrs. Peters provides a way out for that. Well, she might have just been tired. Yeah, that's one of the few kind of like, I, I was reading this play trying to find moments of comedy in it, um, or if this was a dark comedy, and I don't really know for sure. That's one opportunity for it, I think, is this relationship between the two women as they figure this out but i don't i don't know how often you end up laughing in this play or how often the characters do like like interesting funny things or clever funny things in this play but that moment was an opportunity for one in my mind at least i think if you see the play more than once there are some things that strike you as funny especially in regards to the men Because once you know what's happened in the play and you see all the evidence that they discover, when they do things like bumble through and say, well, we're off to do important things and solve the mystery. And the women are like, okay, (laughs) (laughs) nothing important in here. (laughs) Yeah, especially towards the end when there are important things, like they begin hiding the quilting box and they are, you know, trading things back or trying to get the box with the bird in it into pockets and stuff like that. So, yeah. So maybe farcical uh, comedy is in there. The question then for me becomes, Are do these women see in Mrs. R- Mrs. Wright's unfortunate, abusive, uh, oppressive relationship with her husband some of their own situation? Is that why they choose to cover it up? Or if not that, why? What, what is the motivation that they ultimately do protect Minnie? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, especially like again, not to not to focus on Mrs. Peters a lot, but like that's that's she has a lot of power in this scenario because she's tied to the law. She's 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 at least associated with the sheriff. Um so so you have to ask the questions of I mean, it you you are, of course the answer is yes that these these women are living within a patriarchal system of power and so what are the kind of micro 
we see some of the microaggressions that are, are carried out, the, the referring to the things they're talking about as trifles or the disrespecting of the space or things like that. We see some of that here, but what else, part of this plays a big question is what happens when we're not here? What happens behind closed doors? What happens when you you don't get to know all the individual actions or microaggressions or, or just full out abuses that happen in, in different places? You just see the public face of people. Right. I like to use the word microaggression, right? That's a word that's in our common lexicon now that probably would not have been when Susan Glassville was writing the play. But in some ways, the play is a pretty good study of microaggressions, of the ways that these men do things which seem perfectly normal and uh, part of their everyday conversation to them, which the women and which, you know, they're, they're things which offend the women, which hurt the women, which make them see in the somebody who has a very clear, very obvious oppressive abusive relationship, echoes of their own experience. I'm thinking of when, uh, I forget if it's the sheriff or the county attorney, one of them has, has gotten their hand all sticky because all that fruit exploded in the cupboard. So he goes to wash it off. And when he's washing it off, he reaches for a towel and the towel's dirty. And he gets all upset about the fact that the towel's dirty, so he kicks over all of these pans. And then right after that, they talk about oh, how silly all this stuff in the kitchen is. And as soon as they're gone, those women put those pans back in order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the kind of re, re, uh, re, reassociating the space with themselves or re, reclaiming the space after they have kind of walked through and, and, and made fun of it, disregarded it. And, and reclaiming it for many, right? I mean, they're very early in the play. They're to some degree on Minnie's side because they're defending her space from the ways that the men talk about her space and her house. And are feeling embarrassed about it, too, like for her. Like, this is this is an intensely private thing. <laughs> like, they, they imagine, uh, I think it's Mrs. Hale saying, you know, I can't imagine what it would be like for people to come into my house when, when I'm away. And, and Especially to make judgments. Have, after having been dragged off, right? That's what they say is, well, of course the house is dirty. She wasn't like getting ready for guests. Right. She was dragged off to jail. So, you yeah. know, how dare you? And they don't ever say this directly to the men, but this is the conversation that they share is, you know, isn't it sort of unfair that this expectations exists, that the house is clean and perfect all the time, even when it's you who created a situation in which the house could not possibly be clean and perfect all the time. You dragged her off in the middle of the night. She didn't have time to clean. She literally had bread sitting out that was rising that she was working on. Yeah, which which ties to the... I think that ties into implicating John Wright for some blame in this equation. I think that, that what what that is associated with is the, the move towards, you know, yes, per, most likely she killed him. But maybe there was a reason for it. <laughs> well, he killed maybe. her canary. There's definitely a reason. That's true. But perhaps that's not, you know, we don't want to broadly say that that's the reason to kill people. <laughs> well, of course, right? I mean, the question, I, I'm not sure the play really even tries to present the question, was the murder justified? Right. Because... It, it, I mean, we don't really have enough evidence to determine that, right? We talked about this at the beginning of our conversation. The truth is we do not get very many specifics about how Minnie was treated badly by her husband. There's just sort of a broad understanding that she was. But as an audience, I'm not sure we have a lot to go on to say he did all these things to her. We sort of know that he was a bad husband and that he definitely had the potential for violence because he killed her canary. But I'm not sure we're given the right the right balance of things to be any sort of judge, jury, and executioner in that situation. I agree with that. Perhaps, though, we are given enough information to uh, to say, can't you understand why? Um, and I think the characters go on that journey too, pretty specifically. I think I think it's Mrs. Hale who talks about a kitten that was murdered in her childhood by a boy who like gets to the kitten and like chops its head off with a hatchet. And she she in a, in the in the crucial moment of revelation, figuring out that it's because the bird died that she killed her husband. She's like, in that moment when this boy killed my chicken with it, not my chicken, my cat, <laughs> <laughs> my kitten with a hatchet, um, I could have hurt him. Like that's that's the admission in that scene. And I think and I think that's 
certainly as a form of early feminism, but but this is true now too. I think that is the call for the audience. Like, can't you imagine how you could maybe hurt someone who did this kind of who enacted this kind of aggression against you and and any number of other small aggressions along the way? And then there's this piece that is Mrs. Hale's strong argument for perhaps she is a character in the play that does believe the murder was justified. And it's because she knew Minnie back when she was Minnie Foster. And she was this apparently delightful, cheerful, sort of socialite. Uh, she sang in the choir. She was happy. She had such a beautiful voice. And the, her marriage to John Wright like we've said, changed her entirely. She became uh, probably something that we would today describe as depressed and certainly um, cowed by her husband in some way. She And so, at the one of the kind of crucial back and forths, Mrs. Peters says, the law has got to punish the crime, Mrs. Hale. Mrs. Hale responds, I wish you'd seen Minnie Foster when she wore a white dress with blue ribbons and stood up there in the choir and sang, oh, I wish I'd come over here once in a while. That was a crime. That was a crime. Who's going to punish that? Mm-hmm. I think that's a reference to the the crime of basically uh, she's saying the sort of spiritual and emotional murder of Minnie Foster as she was forced to be cut to fit this uh, lesser role of being Minnie Wright, not mm-hmm. her own person anymore, but the a person that is forced to fit her husband's cold, dark, uh, uh, oppressive situation. And perhaps a call of culpability, certainly for Mrs. Hale, in not supporting her in that and not being a not giving of herself to come to a space that she admits she finds kind of drab and not a happy space um, to be of help to this person who needed it. Um, I think I think there's a, a slight call to the to certainly to them, but then also as as a result to the audience to wonder around when when are times that I can reach out to someone in need who maybe is, is, is unable to be reached by people who is in a position of, of need, but not being able to reach out themselves. Right. And Mrs. Hale's guilt, her feeling that I should have been there for many, maybe I could have prevented this, or at the very least I could have had a better understanding of the situation and the way it was really boiling over is in a lot of contrast to Mrs. Peters, who says that she didn't really even know Minnie Wright at all before they brought her into the jail. She she's never knew. I mean, it's a small town in the Midwest, so the idea that they'd never met is a little bit hard to believe. But Mrs. Peters said, I didn't know her at all. And so you have these two women who have a very different context on that relationship, and yet they're both met in that same decision at that same moment. So Mrs. Peters, uh, something has happened to bring her along into that. Not just I knew her when she was a young woman, and I've seen what this marriage did to her as an individual, but something else, because she doesn't have that. Yeah, she doesn't have the the kind of friendship context necessarily, but something about the importance of this situation or the level to which this situation escalated um, kind of calls her into that same space, that same uh, act of of kind of camaraderie and, and allyship around this woman who was can, was surviving in this space for so long. And I think that is why that line that we brought up earlier where the county sheriff basically says, well, the sheriff's wife, she's basically married to the law anyway, right? I think that's why that line is so crucial to Mrs. Peter's decision-making because it is it seems to me to be fairly directly tied to what Mrs. Hale describes Minnie as having gone through in perhaps a more extreme way. The loss of a woman's identity when she entered her marriage, she ceased becoming an individual. So for someone like Susan Glassbell, who sees the oppressive injustice of that and wants to write a plate about it, Mrs. Peters becomes a really lovely reinterpretation of that because she's able to see in her own marriage the way that she's lost her individuality and become basically just a a sidecar of her husband, the sheriff. Right. And, And in that way, that's kind of a pinnacle moment. Like, what choice do you make the choice that you make will dictate to some extent what follows and how, how life follows for you. 
And so that I, I, the, the, the moment that she chooses to kind of fall one way or the other has long-standing implications for her. Certainly she sees that she could be living into a similar situation as Mrs. Wright was. And the decision that she makes is not to do that, right? Exactly. She, she, she deliberately says, well, I'm not married to the law. Right. <laughs> I'm going to cover up a murder. <laughs> <laughs> How much more not married to the law could you possibly be? Yes. Right? She asserts that I'm not just my husband's uh, uh, avatar. I am my own individual. And then in, an, in another one of those moments that is sort of funny once you know what's happening, the men, it's another one of those men bumbling moments. So the county attorney says, oh, these women, they don't have anything dangerous. And they have in this collection of things they're bringing all of the evidence. Right. The county attorney's like, nothing dangerous there. She's married to the law anyway, blah, blah, blah. And then the sheriff turns around and is like, we better go look at these windows, George. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just sure absolute no imbecile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, so here we are at the end of mini month. We've talked a little bit about how short plays and one acts are structured throughout the month. Um, what about this particular one act um, is or what about this story is served well by this play being a one act? What is unique in this story? What works very well? What maybe could or could not be done in a full length play with this same story that could be done in a one act? What do you think around the, the, the structure of this piece of dramatic literature? Well, the beauty of one-act short plays, even 10-minute plays, maybe even more sharply, is that all you get is a snapshot. So you're left with questions, you're left with mystery, but you're also left with this imprint of this short amount of time that you spent engaging a, a just sort of a flash of a story. And this story works really well for that. Could you write a long, full-length play about these characters and similar dilemmas? Of course you could. And I'm sure Susan Glassblow had done that. It would have been incredible, just like this one act is incredible. But the story is served really well by us only seeing a flash. We don't have all the details. We don't have all the information. We're just left with these impressions. And the impressions ring really strongly of these women who ally themselves against their imbecile, objectifying husbands. Yeah, the ambiguity that comes about because of being kind of thrown into the middle of a moment, thrown into the middle of things being discovered. You don't get a whole lot of before, you don't get a whole lot of after, you get a ton, in, in this case, especially around the right family, you get a ton of subjective views of that family, one person's, one or two people's perspective of them, and then get to walk through the discovery with them about what happened and discovering more about these characters than even they knew. Um, we as the audience get to do that with real time along with them, which happens in this play. We've talked about the unities before. There is a unity of time in this play. The play takes place in the amount of time that it takes to watch it. Um, right, just one scene, one location. It's played beginning to end without any breaks or skips in time. You know, like we said, it's about a little shy of a half an hour runtime, we think, and it's a little bit shy of a half an hour story. Yeah, and it's all in the same place. You don't have to worry about tracking a whole bunch of different places and, and, and worrying. Uh, even this, it's in the same room. Everything about this play that needs it, everything that's needed to tell this story is right in front of you the whole time. There's no like weird magic about it. It's just what you can observe and what is told to you. And in that way, that's kind of similar to what the, the Mrs. Peters and Mrs. Hale go through is. It's just what's in front of them. It's just what they know. They haven't talked to Mrs. Wright in a long time because she's so isolated. Mrs. Peters doesn't know her at all. So we go on a very similar uh, journey as they do in this structure, this kind of 10 to, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 minutes of experience of, of their their life. And when you, when you boil a play, a piece of drama, and you try to decrease the amount of time it takes to tell the story. You do a one act or a short play, what you end up boiling it down to is the most dramatic core, the most dramatic question, the most dramatic experience. And so this this 30 minutes is packed full, beginning to end. There's nary a wasted line in the whole thing. Everything follows one right after another. The dominoes are set up. Like you said, everything's on stage from the beginning. The characters come in with a whole world of context that we don't really have the time to learn about. And we just see them face a core single dramatic moment. And just slowly suss out 
more information, more details from the same thing. So we get to see the 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 build again. Like I, I loved your analogy of like the snapshot that you see. You could just get a snapshot. You just get one retinal image. You just get to see one thing that hangs out with you for a while. And that's it. You don't get to know, like, you know, I would want to know how the trial ends, <laughs> how this how this all works out, whether or not what, what it's like when Mrs. Wright comes home to this space, if she gets gets off without being charged with murder. So you don't get you don't get that. You kind of are left longing for more, but at the same time, having experienced a really rich snapshot of life. Right. And because you don't get that stuff, like you say, you do wonder about it, but it does make the experience that you have gotten much more clear, right? It's a lot easier when the play is this condensed to say the question of this play is what are the women going to do with the evidence that's presented to them? You know, in a longer version of a similar story where you see the night where Mr. Hale comes and finds Mrs. Wright in her kitchen, you see the trial afterwards, the questions that are asked increase, and it's possible that the clarity with which those questions are asked and answered decreases. Yeah, yeah, it could it could become any number of other things rather than this one kind of rich moment that you just get to engage this one theme. You don't have to engage the moral issue of killing people over birds. It's just the, the one question of, of what they will do with this information. Well, I think that is all the time we have for this play and for many months. That is yeah. the last play of what has been a delightful month of one X short plays. I agree. It's been so fun to get to engage with this different form of theater and the different way that it, it manages to tell stories and create images for us to take away. Um, if you all enjoyed uh, Mini Month, you can look forward to another themed month next season. We like to do one of these every season. Um, we have no idea what that is yet, though, so just stay <laughs> tuned about what that's going to be. <laughs> and in another no-script tradition, we do have an upcoming episode with a special guest. So be looking forward to that. Dr. Patricia Ralph, the Learning Engagement Specialist at the Walton Arts Center, is going to join me to talk about The Seagull by Monsieur Chekhov. I don't know why I said French. He's not French at all. <laughs> not, I don't know why I went with French. Monsieur. But <laughs> we're going to do a Chekhov's play, The Seagull. Uh, Dr. Pat, as I call her and know her, is wonderful, and I'm sure you will enjoy the hour that you spend with us. So that is a play coming up. Please watch for when this specific date and episode is going to be released. But we do have our special guest episode coming up. As always, if you have more to add to this conversation, whether about this play, Trifles by Susan Glassball, or about any of the other plays of Mini Month, or further back into the echelons of plays that we've covered, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. At NoScript Podcast is the username for all of those platforms. Also, we have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us anywhere on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about this play and any other of the plays that we've talked about with you. And if you'd like to recommend our podcast to your friends or family, that's a great way you can help us and support the show. You can send them over to Podbean where we're hosted, but you can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. Honestly, if you have a Facebook account, one of the easiest ways to find the new episode is just to be connected to our Facebook page where we post the new episode every Monday morning. And we also, on Wednesdays, post what episode is coming up. So being connected to the Facebook page has a benefit in that way as well. Yeah, so until next week when we return to our regular scheduled programming of a full-length play. Wow, I'm going to have to budget more time for I know, this we're week. back to the long ones. <laughs> until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christians, and thanks for joining us for No Script. We'll see you.